Sounds like Daniel's preaching there, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sure does. Well, good morning. We're really uh, glad you're with us here this morning. What a wonderful time to be able to worship together. And some of you came this morning because uh, you were invited by someone in our congregation, and we're glad you said yes to that. And uh, there are a whole bunch of kids down the hallway on the first floor and on the second floor just having a great time together. It's been fun to hear them sing and laughing and spending time together. So thank you for visiting with us and entrusting your kids to us too. Uh, We love Jesus, and that's why we gather here every Sunday. We love Jesus. And uh, besides that, we long to hear what he wants to say to us. Isn't that right? We long to hear what he wants to say to us. It sounds like we think Jesus is alive, doesn't it? That's actually right. And so on this Easter morning, we just, can, we just declare that he is risen. And uh, we declare it with people all over the world. And so that's what we're going to do as we spend some time together here this morning to look at the reality of this story. You know, I had a, I want to just share a story with you. I, our second daughter, when she was in college a few years ago out in California, went to worship service with her friends, and it was a place where the room was just kind of dark, and everybody was worshiping in there. And then there was a time to greet one another. And um, so she turned to the guy next to her, and he says, hi, I'm Kevin. And she says, I'm Audrey. And, and so then um, she had a cast on her arm, and so Kevin took uh, his coat and actually used it to just prop up her, her, her arm. And she looked over at him, and then she looked at her friend, and she said, And her friend looked over. It was Kevin Costner. And in our family, Kevin Costner is like this person. She says, Dad, we got to watch this movie. There was a movie, The Guardian, and some of you know McFarlane. And so there was Kevin Costner worshiping right alongside of Audrey. And she just couldn't wait to text me back. Guess who I was in worship with this morning? You know, there's one thing to see somebody kind of on the big screen, and you think, whoa, you know, that's kind of cool. But another thing, to just see a person in person, and you get this sense that, wow, they're really alive, aren't they? They're really alive. And I think that that's what can happen with us, particularly around Easter. We hear the story. We know the story. But it's hard for us to realize that he's actually in the room with us and that he's really alive. So in this Easter morning... I want to share with you three things that we all need to know about this story of Easter, okay? Three things. The first one is this. This is a real story. This is a real story. Now, last night, we had a bunch of families in this room, and we had a bunch of kids in here, and I said something that I probably shouldn't have said. There were a few parents that questioned my intelligence in regards to saying something about the Easter bunny, And so I just won't say anything about the Easter Bunny. Um, But there are parts of Easter that are, let's just say they're kind of fun, right? They're just simply fun. And so without qualifying the role that the Easter Bunny plays in Easter, it is, after all, a great excuse, isn't it, for a treasure hunt and to be able to pass out candy. And so we love that part of it. But there's a part of Easter, there's a part of the story that is absolutely real. This story is real. These were real events that took place. Look at the text we've been going through in Mark. We've been reading through the Gospel of Mark together. In Mark chapter 15, we come to this place in the story and just listen to, listen to 
the report here of the real events that were taking place in Jerusalem at that time. Verse 42 of chapter 15. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. I mean, did you get it? Did you hear that? This is a record of real events. This is a record of real locations, real places, real activities. There is geography that is embedded in this story. It was a cross that Jesus hung on. In fact, someone from our congregation constructed this cross that is actually a replica of the same size and dimensions of the cross that Jesus hung on. And why do we do something like that? Because it really happened. There was really one of these that looked very much just like that, that Jesus was hung on to die. And after he died, he was really actually taken down from it and put in a tomb. Do you see it? This, is, this really occurred. Even Pilate, who is referenced in the story here, was a real person. In fact, an Italian archaeologist during our time uncovered a script, a plaque in, in, in Judea of, King, of Pilate and his role among the Judean uh, uh, people, leaders of them. First archaeological evidence of the reality that Pilate actually existed outside of the scriptures we have. But there it is, because this is a real story. I have a friend of mine, and um, we have had some conversations about uh, faith and, and uh, asked him what he was doing for Easter. And he says, oh, I'm, I'm going to a, a, a gathering of people and and uh, it, he just says, you know, I've got a lot of different beliefs. And so we've had conversations about that. Um, and then while we were conversing uh, one day about, about faith, he, he just uh, reached over and helped somebody who was in, in, in a bad place and just reached over and helped them out. And he said to myself and to a friend that was next to him, he says, I'm just banking karma. Tomorrow's going to be a very good day for me based on what he had done. And I said, boy... That's great. I can't wait to come back tomorrow and find out how the karma worked. And not in a, in a, in a, in a sarcastic way. Or He's a wonderful guy. He just loves people and cares about them. I really, really like this guy. But even as we were talking about it, he says, well, maybe it's not tomorrow. Maybe it's, you know, in a couple weeks. Who knows? Maybe 10 years from now, I'll tell you, Mark, there it was. The karma paid off. And I, and I just asked him, you know, uh, let me know how that works. You know, how, how, how do you navigate these faith things? And how do you know actually what's real? How do you ever know if what you're counting on is actually worth counting on? Is it real 
or is it simply conviction? Is it real or is it simply hope? And what is faith? Is faith faith the compilation of, of spiritual ideas and maybe sacred spaces? We just kind of find these places where people of faith gather together because they just kind of feel like this is, a, this is a significant place. And then you go to the Gospel of Mark and you realize it's not necessarily about things like that. It's about a place. Dirt that Jesus actually walked on. People that gathered around. Blood that fell on the ground, a body that was hauled into a tomb. Do you see? The thing about this story is that it is absolutely real. And there's surprise that accentuates the reality of this. Listen as we go on to verse six of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. We know what they were expecting. They're expecting to walk in and keep a dead body from smelling too quickly. Very rarely, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified? He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I mean, do you see the surprise that is in this story? Quite an event. First of all, in chapter 15, Pilate is surprised because Jesus has died so quickly. But in chapter 16, these three women are expecting to anoint a corpse with spices. They're alarmed by the occupant that they see in an open tomb, They're trembling and bewildered, the story lets us know, by what he had told them, and they run from the tomb, ignoring the certainly puzzled observers because they were entirely freaked out. That's actually what it means in the original language. They were entirely freaked out. Think about this. This is the gospel of Mark. This is the story, and Mark begins, and we looked at this early on. Mark begins with these words. The good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And it ends with, he will freak you out. (laughs) That's it. That's the gospel story right there. Jesus is utterly surprising. And what he does is beyond human expectations. What he does, (laughs) he's rise from the dead. He abolishes the seemingly absolute power of death This is the death of death. That's what it is. This story is the death of death. This, and this is a real story. But there's another aspect of this too, and it is that it's a relevant story. This is a relevant story. The story ends, it's fascinating actually, the story ends with no details about what happens next for the women. 
I mean, it is so abrupt, isn't it? I mean, we get to verse 8, and it's over. In fact, it seems so abrupt that in some of your Bible translations, you'll actually notice that some people tacked on some more verses because it just seemed like it ended with just kind of a, and that's it? Now, we know this about the Gospel of Mark as we've looked at it. We know it is carefully put together. And it was more than just simply a police report about what happened next. It was actually constructed as an anthem to give tribute to Jesus. We know it. We saw it. We've seen the ways Mark constructed things Jesus said with things Jesus did. And the way the story builds and the way it ebbs and flows and reaches a pinnacle and then comes down and then, and then comes towards the end. So when this gospel ends in verse 8 with women running away, trembling and speechless, because Jesus has freaked them out, why do you think he does that? Well, if it were a story, just a regular story, I mean, there are people who write stories, and at the end, they just kind of leave you like that, and you're left asking the question, I wonder what happens next. In this case, I wonder what happens next for these women. But this isn't merely a story. This is a gospel. And the reason why Mark constructed it this way was that so you and I would ask this question, I wonder what's going to happen next for me. That's why it's written this way. It's written with just a, wow, they were speechless, I wonder how long it will be before something comes out of their mouth. And so for us, we've heard this story of Jesus that starts out the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, with he will freak you out. And the question is, and so what will happen? What does that mean for you? You see, this is a relevant story we are not peeking at the faith story of a particular people group even, and it'd be easy to say that, you know, it was constructed 2,000 years ago, and it was in a place that is very remote from ours and a culture that's very different from ours. How do we even know that there's anything in this story that's transferable to us? And yet, did you look at the text? Even in the text, we see the expectation that comes out of the gospel. In verse 42 of chapter 15, it was preparation day. And then look at what happens after that in parentheses. That is, the day before the Sabbath. Now, if this had been written exclusively for the Jewish people of that time, there would have been no need to explain anything more than it was Preparation Day because every one of them knew exactly what Preparation Day was about. Do you see, this gospel was prepared for more than just the Jewish people of that time. This gospel was intended for every one of us all over the world, and they knew it. They knew it, that this was relevant, not only for them, but for everyone else all over the world. This is something that is actually unique and breathtaking about Christianity. Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist, a prominent sociologist who has studied faith, Christian faith, and other religions and has done all sorts of research. He has said this, there's something that is unique about the Christian faith, and that is its utter portability. It actually travels across cultures in a unique way. There's so many religious influences and faiths around the world, and they grow by propagation and relocation. That's oftentimes how faiths grow. The people that believe it propagate, and then they go places. And Rodney Stark says there's something about the transferability of faith, of Christian faith, 
that is actually extraordinary. There were people that went to the continent of Africa in the early 1900s, and within less than 100 years, the whole African continent was completely transformed by the gospel. We see the same thing happening in the Latin American world, in Latin countries, just this, this, uh, uh, this embrace of the Christian faith. You go over to China, and we read statistically what's happening there. Actually, the growth of Christianity in China is just, is just a, a remarkable. And then you go to South Korea that's been trying. I mean, these are people groups that are so much different than any other, where they're all different types of people all over the world. India, the same thing is happening right now. Do you know where Christianity is growing fastest in all of the world? In Nepal, where some of our friends, where we've been and we've seen it, and, and, and it's not like they all look just like us and came from places just like ours. No, there is something about the gospel that is relevant for absolutely every culture that understands who Jesus is. The reality of what it is. This is a relevant story, not only for us, but all over the world. And its relevance is not only demonstrated across cultures, but it's also demonstrated in our own lives. We know Many of us know that it has been relevant to us in our lives. We just heard just this, uh, I think it was a week or two ago, from somebody that's a part of our church family that came for the Ash Wednesday service. And in the middle of the Ash Wednesday service, we're talking about, let's just feast on God during this time. Let's just put aside all of the cravings and other things that we just have an appetite for. And how about in our life if we actually say, God, I want you to be the source of my hope and my needs. And someone in our congregation wrote an email to us and said, I have to tell you what happened on that Ash Wednesday service. They described that they had been involved with an addiction to alcohol since when they were in their earliest teens. And it's been a part of their life for years and years and years, and they've never been able to beat it. And the person said, in that service, I said to God, Lord, I want to feast on what you can provide for my life. And the person said, it was the most profound experience. I have been set free. I feel like God rescued me. That's relevant. In our Monday, Thursday service, there was someone that was sitting right over there and they said, the reason I'm in this service is because 22 years ago, I gave my life to Christ in this place at that service. He said, let me tell you what happened. I was just hearing about this love that God has for us and I just, I just got on my knees and gave my life to Jesus. And I'm here because it happened 22 years ago. That's relevant. And I know that person. I know what it's done in their life. I know what it's done in regards to their family. I know what it's done in the character of that person's life. I know what it's done to cause them to care for people with compassion that is remarkable and beneficial. Do you see? That's the gospel. And it's not only a real story, it is a relevant story. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to live again so that he might come into our lives and we might be able to say about our lives, there is something that is relevant and extraordinary in it because of it. This is why as a church, 
you can see we actually have signage over there in the foyer that says, this is what we're about, to bring every person to life in Christ. To bring every person to life in Christ. And that brings us to the third aspect of this story. We ask the question, what is it about this story that so changes a life? And it's not simply that it's real, and it's not simply that it's still relevant today for us and cultures all over the world. It's because it's a resurrection story. It's because it is a resurrection story, one that changes everything. Its truth means your life can be characterized by life Again, not because you recommit to being good. How often have you heard that, right? And uh, there's plenty here to be inspired by. Jesus was a good person. He is an inspiration to me, and so I'm going to be good. I guess that'll preach, but that's not what we read in this story. Nor is it because you're inspired to care more. Look at the way he loved people, and I guess I want to love people just like that again. You know, and that can work. And there's something I suppose that's valuable about that, but listen, I'll tell you personally, I can commit to being as good as I possibly can. I can commit to caring for people more than I do, and I'm not very good at it. On my own, I'm not very good at it. The only times I have seen progress in my life in regards to that are times when I've seen Jesus show up and change stuff in me that I've not been able to change myself. This is life change that God invites us into because he lives and he transforms. And this book talks about life that is characterized because this is a resurrection story and because the living Christ wants to live in our lives that my life can be characterized by contentment. Does anybody want that? That my life can be characterized by joy. That my life can be characterized by grace. I can actually be a person that's gracious to other people. That my life can be characterized by self-control. Does anybody want that? That my life can be characterized by healed relationships. That my life can be characterized by life-giving relationships. That my life can be characterized by significance. That my life can be characterized by power to step into broken places and actually see them change. Not because I've got the power, but because he does and he works in me. And broken places around me change because he is the resurrected Jesus and he lives in my life. Does anybody want any of that? And then we see we're not only talking about a story that's real and it's relevant, but it's powerful. I can choose responsibility or I can choose the resurrection. I can choose striving or I can choose him occupying. And the Easter story is for those of us that say, I choose the resurrection. I choose the occupation of the living Christ in my life in such a way that all of those things it talks about, no kidding, that's what this book talks about. That all of those things can take root in my life and I can live the way I was intended to live. Now you may say to me, Mark, do you really believe that? 
I mean, come on. A person walking out of a tomb? You really think that that's possible? I mean, I grew up in the same Western, scientific, analytical, empirical world that you grew up in. And so I get it. We look at it and we say there's no empirical evidence. Empirical evidence means you can just kind of repeat it, right? I get it, but because there's this kind of sense, hey, it's never been done before. It, it's never been done before. And do you expect me to pin my life on something that's never been done before? I want to say two things about that. How many of us want to live in the company of those who live life guided by, but it's never been done before? Do you want that? Do you want a life guided by it's never been done before? Who wants that? And then there's the other part of this, and it's the part of it that takes us on a journey, and I'm not going to go on it with you now, but I would encourage you to go on it, a journey where the evidence, the stories, the circumstances, the surprise, the, the, the data points to actual outcomes that require abilities which transcend human capabilities. And when you see something that has never been done before, you're left with two notions, either so it can't happen now or so perhaps there is a God. <laughs> perhaps there really is. And in this case, if he did that, He's not simply powerful, but he's a God of absolute and ultimate compassion. Do you want to live a life of, I'm going to live in the world of it's never been done before? Or do you want to live a life that is characterized by the resurrected Jesus that, had, that actually did what had never been done before so that we could experience a life of surprising changes of dramatic changes in my life. So, we're going to walk out of here in just a few minutes. And I want you to walk out of here thinking about some things. You'll see on this card placed on your seat, there's some places for you to connect if you would like to. We would love to hear um, who you are and welcome you. And prayer requests on it too. But on the top, there are just notes you can take. And I would imagine during our time together this morning, you've thought about something that you'd like to think a little bit more about. I would imagine that some of you actually have made decisions this morning in regards to your life, and I'm going to invite you into two of those possibilities. But I would encourage you to just write out, what does this look like? And there are two responses that I want to ask you to consider. The first is this. For those of you who have walked a faith journey and Jesus has been a part of it for most of your life, and yet you hear us talk about aspects of what it means for Jesus to live in your life. And you say, it's not happening there. It's almost like we categorize, we segment Jesus and we put him in certain places. Call it a box or whatever it is. And here's what I'm going to ask you to consider. Is it possible that God is saying to you, would you let Jesus out of that box? And would you let him pervade all of your life, all of who you are, 
and let the resurrected Jesus transform even those categories of your life. They might be about relationships, they might be about actions, they might be about attitudes, whatever they might be to say, God, I want you, the resurrected Jesus, to rule in my life and pervade absolutely every single segment of it. So for those of you that are saying, God is asking me to let Jesus out, to let him out, Maybe you want to write that down and what that might look like so you can walk away from here and take some practical steps, some specific steps towards that happening. But I would imagine that in this room there are other people here and you'd say, you know, I've really never let him in, Mark. I mean, I've just kind of done the religious thing, but oh, he's never, he has never been invited in. And so maybe God this morning is actually that, that pulling inside of your heart and your head right now is because you know that God is asking you to let Jesus in. To let the resurrected Jesus in in such a way that he transforms all of who you are and all of how you live. Jesus is risen and he encourages us to respond The interesting thing about Audrey's Kevin Costner story was this. It was a dark place. He came in with a baseball cap, and very few people actually knew he was there. And, you know, who blames him, right? Kevin Costner was actually walking through that crowd, and nobody actually knew he was there. And there are people that would have said, you know what, if only I had known. If Only I had known. Here is what we know. Jesus is risen from the dead. And he lives today. And I don't want any of us to walk out of here and say, if only I had known. He's right here. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for how good you are. Good to us and and powerful I pray, Lord, that your grace and your transforming uh, uh, death and resurrection would take root in lives this morning in ways that it only begin today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.